0: Come on, let's go. I thought we broadcast direct from important overseas capitals. We are about to broadcast
1: this moment in our history.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today, in celebration of International Women's Day, we speak to the Irish poet and essayist Deryn Negriefa, whose prose debut, A Ghost in the Throat, explores trauma and tragedy in the lives of two women separated by centuries. To introduce Deryn and her work, I'll hand over to History Workshop's Christopher Cassan.
2: How do we write the history of women's lives when history itself has hidden them? This is one of the questions that confronts Díreny Gréfa in her book, A Ghost in the Throat, winner of the Irish National Book of the Year and the Foyles Non-Fiction Book of the Year. It is the story of two women separated by centuries. Díren's experiences as a young mother in 21st century Ireland, and the lost life of the poet Eileen dovny whose lament for her murdered husband, Créine Artillera, has been described as the greatest Irish poem of the 18th century. Romantic and tragic, violent and visceral, the Créine belongs, Díren writes, to a literary genre worked and woven by women, entwining strands of female voices that were carried in female bodies. As she faces the challenges of pregnancy and motherhood, Duren finds solace in its words and becomes increasingly obsessed with the woman behind them. Despite anxiety that she holds no doctorate, no professorship, no permission slip, she begins a historical search with what she calls the brazen audacity of one positioned far from the tall walls of the university. Yet again and again she finds only another grand deletion, another ordinary obliteration of a woman's life. Eileen Dove's famous male relatives seem to have written her out of the family history, while endless reading reveals that the academic gaze has swiftly placed her in a masculine shadow, as though she could only be of interest as a satellite to male lives. I am staring at nothing, Deeran thinks to herself, as she stands in an empty field at another dead end. But, she realises, she is also staring at everything. Through research and imagination, in snatched moments after dropping her children to school or putting them to bed, Dieran constructs a very different history. This, her book begins, is a female text. I spoke to Dieran about her extraordinary and unconventional work, and I began by asking her whether she felt she'd been writing a work of literature, a history, or both.
1: For me, any time that we attempt to communicate a sense of our understanding of the life of another um, there's a sense that we're trying to write a history, even if it's purely oral. Um, so as I was going through the writing process, I didn't have a conscious feeling to a certain extent that I was attempting to write a history. And yet, to immediately contradict myself, was also constantly aware of it. And I tried to communicate that in the body of the text, the sense that... I felt very much as though I was intruding on a tradition that wasn't mine to intrude on, that I was approaching this as someone who very much um, wasn't an expert in any way, and that I was very conscious because I had no training, no education as a historian, and it was very possible that I was making extraordinary errors, (laughs) or that I was missing um important sources or that i was going the long way around something that would have been much more straightforward or would have had a much more straightforward solution to it in terms of um chasing down sources and that kind of thing you know that i I was feeling my way into it as i was going so there was both There was the sense that there was the sense that I was very much just trying to write the life of another woman and and my own life and trying to find her life. But then there was also the sense of, oh, God, I'm, I, I am trying to write a history and who am I to attempt this? So I was dealing with both, I suppose. And, and there was a lot of sense of that bothness, if you can call it that, um, that ran throughout the process of writing the book. You know, that kind of duality went through it in so many different um dreams that ended up you know making their way into the book so anytime I'm speaking about it I'm really struck by that sense of both yes and no you know and it's it's a strange book that way kind of is what it is
2: Yeah and that that bothness I think is present in the way that you talk in the book about your anxiety about not being trained as a historian. You know you talk at one stage about how you're very aware that you don't have a doctorate or professorship or a permission slip and you can't get into the right archives or the right libraries because you're not in an academic position and so you have to call in favours from friends and stuff. But at the same time for me as a historian who works on the pre-modern period as well, I was constantly identifying with all of the everyday work that you were doing on the project. Like you talk about the need for like, you know, constantly reading things back and back and back to yourself, all of the dead ends that you find reading sources, all of that frustration of spending ages trying to find the right thing. And then when you find it, it doesn't have what you want in it. Like that is, I think, so identifiable. And that made me wonder, did you talk to historians or people who had done the kind of research that you ended up doing either before or during the project or were you just finding your way on your own
1: i was very foolishly trying to find my way on my own (laughs) (laughs) i'm not proud of myself saying that um because i feel now having come through the whirlwind of first of all experiencing the journey that's described in the book and then spending years trying to write it in a way that would um bring the reader along with me I can now take a step back from it and look back on the process and say with my hand in my heart that I wish I'd had the cop on to seek out that kind of um, expertise at an earlier stage even just in terms of trying to engage someone who would share my passion i know that there's many many people out there who have dedicated large parts of their lives to studying this kind of area you know and and i'm sure would have been really generous with their time but i suppose a lot of it was that i kind of almost didn't know to begin with as i was feeling my way into what i was doing and i think we often have that experience with books where there's no point in the early stage where you need to write um you know, I don't even know how you'd phrase this in scholarship or in doctoral research but where you have to write an artistic statement or a statement of scholarship of this is what I'm attempting to do, you know. So I really, I often fall back on that analogy of like walking into a dark room and feeling around for the life, light switch. There's a good slip there, the light switch, um, and trying to illuminate what it is that you're seeking. And And I was walking around in the dark. Um, for a long time as I was beginning research on this book. Now, when it was at manuscript stage and had been accepted by the amazing people at Tramp Press and I was starting to go through edits first and that kind of a thing, it really got to me that sense of, oh my God, I'm actually going to publish this. My own foolhardy efforts to research and, and, and write a history Uh, this could be riddled with errors I have to go to um what I would consider and anytime that I'm speaking about you know scholars or the academy or how I see the university bear in mind that it is with no small measure of envy right because that is what I would have loved to have dedicated my life to that kind of work and also admiration you know so um and, and I suppose doing myself down a bit as well in, in a very genuine way that I'm really aware all the time of my own um, flaws <laughs> at every level. But yeah, after when, when I was going towards publication um, with Tramp Press, I went to a friend of mine who's a historian, Aoife of Ratnock, um and asked her, well, commissioned her to read the book with the eye of a historian and was expecting her to come back with like, kind of shaking her head in a solemn way and just be like, oh Lord, there is so much to fix about this. There's so much that you missed. You know, we need to work really hard on getting this in order. You can't put this out in the world. But what was extraordinary extraordinary to me when I met up with her was exactly what you were describing a moment ago. The sense that, oh my God, Actual real life historians often have the same experience that I had. That thing of feeling your way around in the dark and looking for a light switch, that thing of things feeling a little bit shambolic as you're trying to figure something out. And that she like there were one or two things that, that she drew my attention to, but for the most part, what was most um useful to me in that conversation with Eva was the sense of talking to someone. knew what they were doing and who was saying yeah it is really hard isn't it yeah it's really hard when you're finding you're hitting these walls of silences and in a history that you're attempting to research and to write about it's really Mm -hmm. hard and that was really (laughs) reassuring and I suppose simultaneously affirming to me you know the, the feeling that okay and, and I really do try and own it throughout the process of the book where I'm bringing the reader along with me and constantly drawing their attention to the fact of you know you're, it's, you're not in the hands of an expert here at any point and I think the reader's always aware of that but I'm teaching myself as I'm going but yeah I only went to historian at the end really of the process and and that dialogue and discussion was really illuminating for me.
2: I think one of, maybe one of the reasons why I as a historian and many actually a number of other historians who I know have loved your book is how you are explicit and honest about that process in a way that those of us who write within academic history are often discouraged from being so because the final product is supposed to look polished and as if the historian has gone and done you know we don't include the chapter on well I spent three months in Munich and I found absolutely nothing and sort of was crying myself to sleep every night about not being able to read the documents (laughs) But, but therefore that makes me wonder is the fact that you approached this story this history as kind of an outsider actually what enabled you to do the kind of unconventional history that you did. Because it's not like Eileen Dove is an unknown person. It's not like historians were not aware of her. Like her 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 work, her literary work, is long celebrated and very well known. And her family, as you know, as you point out many times in the book, the male members of her family are very well historically researched and celebrated and so on. But for whatever reasons, this history has not been told before, like large amounts of the historical research that you've done in this book simply has not ever been read or put together in the way that you have done so. So is there maybe an advantage that you found as an outsider? I think
1: it's very important for me to acknowledge the fact that um, someone who's working at my level of being an amateur and and trying to dive into this subject could never in a million years write about it in the way that i have without the work of historians and literary scholars who've gone before me like so many of the sources as i was going through them um were based on work that had been done by many other people, and as you say, you know, if if I was attempting to write the story of someone whose life hadn't already and and whose family hadn't already been attended to and and written about so well and researched so well, I would have hit a lot more walls, you know. And and I was very fortunate to be able to draw on that deep well. Um, I think if I was coming to it as as someone who was who was uh, more educated than I was, and I was aiming to write a biography like that. I, I maybe would have tried to put manners on my own desire behind the text. I would have maybe wanted to put a certain um, polish on it, and and like you say, to edit out a little of my own experience and my own issues in trying to figure it out. I think the fact of coming to it as an outsider, what that allowed me to do in some ways was to really like go at it to give myself permission um yeah to give myself permission to come at it as an outsider and to go at the areas that I was slightly ashamed of but really wanted to know more about you know like that I wasn't coming at it just as a historian attempting to write a biography that I was coming at it as an ordinary woman who wanted to know about another ordinary woman's life and the I wanted to know weren't necessarily bits <laughs> weren't necessarily bits of someone's life that would be written about in an official biography, and that also I could sometimes veer over all of a sudden in communicating to the reader, okay, this is a point where we don't know what happened, and this is a point where I'm going to show you what I imagine happened and um, mm-hmm. you know that i can I can kind of slide from a chapter on how strange a process it is to attempt to translate the poem and to accept your own inevitable failure in that, that I can slide from that into attempting to write, like, the early days of Eileen Dove's life in Derry Man and then into, like, imagining a scenario where, which led to a piece of Delph, broken Delph being buried in the ground and left there for me to find centuries later. Like, you know, that you're kind of sliding from... Back into fiction and back again, in, and and bringing and flagging it to the reader as You do so, but yeah, I don't think that would have been possible if I wasn't coming out of from an ex- perspective as an outsider. You know,
2: well, that's an interesting question, I guess, because as historians, like we always have to, or we should always be accepting that there's way more that we don't know than what we do know. And you fill those gaps. I mean, I suppose maybe unsurprisingly, as a poet, you you fill them with beautiful imagery and. Background and uh, emotional—you know—speculation is the wrong word, but like you said, you imagine what might be within those gaps. But I don't feel that at any stage of the book you, you know, fill those gaps with wild hypotheses of like what might be in them. It feels—it feels true to the story that you're telling, and you seem to imagine within the bounds of the life that you are sketching. And I wondered when you were going through the process of writing those gaps did you think like how far can or should i push this part of the imagination
1: Hmm. i was very conscious of ethical boundaries not as a historian but as a woman um and just at a human level um the sense of feeling my way into someone else's life and figuring out what felt okay to speculate about what felt okay to communicate and what i found myself sometimes doing and felt invasive and wrong you know like at one stage there's a part in the book where i'm trying to figure out if eileen of was was pregnant um before she got married and i resort to Um, conception calculators on the internet to figure out backwards from the date of birth of her first son whether she had already been pregnant and that felt wrong you know that felt really wrong like and, and i do communicate that through the book you know what what am i doing here this feels like I've stepped really far over a threshold of what's right and wrong. So I felt that as well with the, in terms of, of how far I could imagine my way into her life. And, and I was very conscious of it, I suppose as well, because I began to feel so close to this woman, you know, her, she began to feel like a real presence to me. Um, she was with me so often at a time that was very, um, exhausting and strange in my own life, rearing four small children under the age of six. And every time I returned to her poem, it was steady, it was the same. You know, I'd, I'd say it out loud to myself and, and it was her voice that was coming to life again. And I had such a deep um, respect and admiration for her that I was kind of approaching that area, you know, as not as a friend even, isn't what I want to say, but just as an admirer of hers, I often questioned myself from that perspective. Do I have the right to do this? Is it the right thing to do? Or, you know, is this stepping way over a boundary?
2: from your very first line and your very last line of the book are very explicit about the book being a female text. And Eileen Dove is a woman who, despite her own sort of extraordinary character and impact on Irish culture and literature and language, has so often been cast in the shadow of her male relatives. Um, both by male scholars, but also by those male relatives themselves, as you find many times in the book that she is almost written out of the family history. And I wonder whether or not the fact that you are writing this book so explicitly as a woman about another woman, is that sort of intrinsic to the way that you approached her story? In the sense that you at times seem incredibly angry when you find those parts of the story where Eileen Dove has been sidelined or overlooked Um, you know is that partially seeing yourself and women in your own life in that is that empathy on her behalf or is that just an awareness that the kind of patriarchal structure that sidelined Eileen Dove then has basically continued in the way that we have written about her life ever since she died.
1: Um, I think it's a little of all three of those things you know that there is that kind of inevitable sense of rage there of 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 recognizing um, of recognizing like as I say in the book, how much has changed, how little you know that for the life of a woman in in contemporary Ireland or or the life of a woman back then there's a certain amount that has changed extraordinarily in the intervening years and and in terms of the lived days of a woman now versus then and yet there's so much that's still the same so yeah there's definitely that sense of of rage every time you encounter it because this was an extraordinary woman you know and as you say she made such a huge contrib- contribution to her literary canon um and the fact that she could have done so and that we still wouldn't know where she was buried like something as simple or or what year she died like those simple facts we take for granted so often you know within within brackets after someone's name that we can say born this day died this day buried forever like we don't even know that like it's very difficult for someone like me i suppose not to feel a sense of anger at that
2: yeah and I wonder whether, as well, there is an element of the connection between what you were going through, while also reading the story of a woman who, in her poem, speaks about the human body and her her sex very explicitly, um, and whether or not you, in writing a female text about this woman, also were able to illuminate something about her as a woman, not just as a kind of a forgotten historical figure.
1: Yeah, I think maybe part of that as well is related to the fact that I was coming to it very much as, and, and had acknowledged myself that I was approaching the whole thing just as an ordinary woman, you know, and that that was the main thing that I could offer her, that I couldn't offer her this sense of, you know, impeccable scholarship and whatnot, that I was I was coming to her of laying my services at at her feet as a woman and that i would attempt to write her life using that I, i i've been really overwhelmed since i wrote the book with the correspondence that i've had from people and um like from from ordinary people like myself and and from extraordinary artists and that kind of thing and and Alice Maher, who I really, really admire so much, wrote to me and, and said that she felt like that the book was extremely radical in how it located the search for Eileen Love within my own body. Um, and that was something that hadn't struck me until she said that, you know, and, and and it really resonated with me. I think sometimes when we're trying to create something like this, we kind of almost don't realise what we're doing until many years later. Sometimes the reader has a better idea because I think sometimes we're too close to it as writers. We can't almost, we can't see, we can't see what readers see in it, you know, because we're too close to it still. We see the nuts and bolts of the machine as we're looking at it and the bits that we would love to change. But that really struck me when when Alice said that because. You know, I hadn't fully realised that that's what I was doing. I was playing, as I say, my services at Eileen Dove's feet, but I was coming to her as another woman and and locating that search for her in, you know, down to the mitochondrial level of my own this white female lived experience of of inhabiting a body like this, um, and that was the most valuable thing, really. I think that I could that I could offer her. Lord and
2: all as I am, you know. But there's something amazing about that idea of like locating the search for her story in your own body. And you could probably recite some of the Kina yourself. But when I was reading it, uh, to remind myself at the the end of the book where you have your extremely personal and touching translation in English, as well as the text in Irish, uh, I couldn't help reading the text in Irish out loud. And the bits about the body, make it feel like a story that is located in bodies and especially emotions as well because it's such an emotional poem and they are such emotional people and I wondered is that is that something that drew you to the story or made you think at times differently about the story about the fact that Art and Eileen are clearly very emotional people Um, you know for better or for worse it makes them amazing characters but it also I suppose leads to this terrible tragedy how did you approach that in, with, the, with the kind of responsibility that you talked about in terms of not pushing, you know, the details of their life too far.
1: I think the volatility was part of what drew me to them, you know, um, I found it so fascinating and, and I described within the book that there was that kind of turning and returning again and again to the text, that it kept cropping up throughout my life, that when I first encountered it as a child, I just didn't get it really and found it kind of boring like other schoolwork when I came to it as a teenager, there was really that sense of being struck by the force of these personalities and by vividness and immediacy of the scenes described in it, like in terms of a visual sense. Like when I came to it as a teenager, I could I could see it in my mind's eye almost like watching film, you know, the, particularly that, that image, which I suspect just personally, is one of the reasons that the Queen have found its way to us. The image of, of Eileen Dove being carried to where Art's body has been thrown on horseback, or leaping off the horse, scooping up his blood, drinking it, and then speaking this extraordinary poem over his body. Um, I feel like there's something in that image that resonates really, really, really deeply to Bone level in Irish people. I think it speaks so strongly to grief and of all we've lost. Um, and I think, or I suspect that it's difficult even to articulate sometimes the extent of that, but there's something in that image that speaks to us really, really deeply. And I think that's part of the reason that it's constantly um, printed and reprinted and included in anthologies and put in curricula and that it, I, I think that's part of the reason that it came to us you know it's that image um and that it's so powerful and as you say you know they were a very particular people they were volatile they were passionate um, I really admire them at a human level I really admire both of them I'm, I, I I found myself often as I was going through this process considering what it would be like to actually know them as people and I mean I'm not sure I would have wanted to put myself and my young family of children very close to anywhere Arthur Lira was with his <laughs> crazy shenanigans <laughs> you know like he was always going to bring trouble like her family said the whole time and they wanted to keep their heads down you know they wanted to survive the era of the penal laws and to get along making enough money to keep them all going and to keep them all in education in France and that kind of thing. And here comes art, you know, like that image, which may be folklore, but of him standing on a barrel on its side and running it down mainstream and Macroon, you know, I mean, talk about the opposite of keeping your head down. And yet, it is compelling to encounter someone like that even when you're studying a history even when you're reading a poem they're the people that you want to find out more about aren't they like you want to know what's going to happen next to a character like that you know yeah. but yeah i think i wouldn't necessarily have wanted to put myself anywhere near him if i lived in those Absolutely
2: times. not. i'd say they would have been a nightmare to have as neighbors as well
1: oh my god yeah. like i often thought as i was researching this it's like soaked you know it's like coronation street or something like oh god here comes all in love and arse. what are they gonna do next <laughs>
2: yeah. i wondered a little bit about the bit that you said about the story resonating with irish people on a kind of bone level historically because i totally agree with you about that connection to mourning and grief that i think is kind of so deep within us as a culture and this year has been one of the most psychologically difficult things I think for Irish people is not not having our normal morning rituals during the pandemic but there's also something I think about this story that connects to a part of Irish history that we struggle to relate to. Irish people in their minds have a very clear visual image of the famine and 19th century Ireland and the war of independence but the Ireland that existed in say the late 18th century Eileen Doves Ireland is an Ireland that I think that we don't culturally have as clear a picture of this penal sectarian system in a culture that is shifting from one language to another and I wondered as you were sketching beautiful pictures of art and Eileen's life what did you draw on in terms of thinking about what what life must have been like for them culturally?
1: It's funny you know uh, I find myself with these questions are so interesting to me and and I want to be able to answer them as a scholar, even though I never could, you know. I mean, I drew on the sources, but more than anything, I drew on the experience of putting my own body in the landscapes that they had inhabited. That was what fed the book. Like so much of the book is just, Um, enchantment at nature you know it's the fact that I can go to Derry Nan and walk the same forests that Nellie as she was known as a child and her twin sister Mary would have been running through you know that I can touch the trees there that I can that I can press my knees into the ground that I can go to their mother's gravestone that I can that I can sit my frame on the sand that they would have been running right in front of their home. Um, and that I can place myself there just at a human level and that I can very often see the same view that they saw, you know, the the hills over Derrynan, the skyline, the clouds moving in the sky, that there's a certain amount, the birds in particular, the starlings that persist, you know, and, There's a certain amount of it that's just the intersection of putting a person like me with an imagination like mine into the places that we know that they were and that they lived in that allows me to kind of unspool my consciousness that's rooted in 21st century life and and allow myself to imagine what it was or what it might have been like for them. And that was the thing I drew on the most,
2: I think. Because there's something very... like something very interesting about the way that you use nature to connect the two stories which is your story your personal story in the 21st century and Eileen's story you know as you say in the same physical places but you are so aware and sensitive all the time to the historical kind of unfamiliarity of her world compared to yours in the sense that you are so meticulous with the sources and you do think about what it would have been like for her in a very different type of culture and world and it made me wonder whether you use the language as well as a way of drawing your world and her world together because i mean you and i are having this conversation on the west coast of ireland like if we were having this conversation in well from where we are maybe 100 years ago we might have been having it in a different language, and. Eileen Dove was living at a time where one language world was sort of beginning to pass into another language world. And her extraordinary poem, I suppose, is one of the last great epic Irish language poems that we have of an Irish-speaking country. And you have written poetry in both languages and you've translated your own poetry. And it made me wonder, you wrote a book as an Irish language poet, or a a poet who has written the Irish language about a woman whose most famous poem is in the Irish language and who spoke the Irish language but she wrote the book in English and I wonder whether that duality of languages was it was it a difficulty was it an opportunity and did it make was it a way of you kind of being able to connect with this woman who was living in a, a much more bilingual world than the world that we are living in in Ireland now Mm.
1: It's interesting to me, you know, and and people are often curious about that, about why I wrote this book in English. And and all I can offer to that is that there's there's an essential mystery to the writing impulse for me when a poem or when a poem, whether in Irish or in English, comes to mind or begins to communicate itself. And and in this case, when, when an essay starts to communicate itself, it already knows somehow what language it needs to be expressed in and that's never ever really a conscious decision for me um i kind of feel like it has nothing to do with me <laughs> it just is what it is when it arrives Interesting. um and that i i often feel when i'm talking about writing that you know i can't remember who it was who said that if if you're writing well that you're just trying to be a good typist You know, and that there is that sense when something is flowing and when a writing project is going well, that you almost feel as though you're being dictated to and that you're just writing down the words in whatever language they want to be in. And you're turning your ear to this mysterious impulse, whether it comes from without or within, you know, so yeah, I think I I, just, I I write in the language that the idea first comes in, and and it just has to be what it is. Um, in terms of the question about how whether, um, language was an issue that helped me to um explore the life of Eileen Dove, I think yes, yeah, I think that it's very much like bridge or a connection between us. It was, it was like, you know, it was like a key that let me unlock the door. I think there were, um, because it's because it, her Irish as communicated through the poem is monster Irish and very much of its time, you know, there were some parts of it that I really had to come to grips. English is my first language. I only learned Irish through the Quail School system of immersion education and um, so it was really interesting for me to dive into the poem i suppose and and to turn my ear to her very different way of speaking in irish than what i would have you know of our recovered (laughs) recovered attempts at, at irish you know um and it was really interesting whenever i'm thinking about irish and thinking about particularly in these terms um i always think of the Irish for escalator, which is thaira um, a living stairs. Um, and I think that sense of Ouroboros that you have with an escalator, of the round and roundness of it, and the fact of when you step onto that kind of metal shape that you're being carried, you're being elevated, it's kind of like an ascension. And that's often how I feel when I'm speaking Irish, it feels as though I'm, I'm being carried on on the words that people who came before us used so nimbly, you know, like Eileen Dove. And it always feels, it always feels like an honor and a closeness. Um, and it's a motif, I think really, that I return to again and again within the book, that sense of, as you described so beautifully earlier, you know, when you read Eileen Dove's Queen out loud, that you're carrying her words on your breath, that they're emerging from your living body. And that that's when, for me, that's when works of literature are really alive. You know, they come alive in the imagination, they come alive on our breath. And that's the thing that I'm most grateful to of this whole process of publishing this book is the fact that there are many people who would have been very aware of Eileen O'Connell, but that they are coming back and speaking this poem out loud again. And that there are other people, you may be surprised to hear, who have never, ever heard of her and never heard of this poem. And that equally, they are coming to this poem and that it's coming to life again for them too. So I just feel very honoured that I could be some tiny part of the many people who have shown devotion to her over the years and who have helped to carry her words onwards to more people. And I think many, many more people are going to come afterwards as well who continue that work.
2: Because you ask yourself at one point, like, what is this all for? And you kind of imagine that Eileen Dove certainly would not be like, cheering you on in this because she wouldn't necessarily care what people were thinking of her Um, and that's a very human sort of empathic way of thinking about someone in the past and that I guess one thing that I love about your book is the way that you are so open about the fact that those of us who study people in the past do develop these relationships with them and that that does throw up a whole load of ethical considerations for us as people, not just as scholars, but as people in the sense that we develop some kind of weird relationship with the lives of the people we are studying. And it reminded me of this um, prologue to Natalie Zeman Davis's book, Women on the Margins, where she writes the story of these three uh, early modern women who come to her in a dream and basically tell her, what the hell is this? You've got all of our lives wrong. I don't wanna be written about like this. And they're just offended. and She basically tries to convince them to that that she has done something with their lives that they might be able to have something positive to say about but they are mostly unconvinced that made me wonder by the end of the book because you have got had gone through such a dramatic and at times traumatic personal time while writing eileen dove's life which is itself full of incredibly traumatic events how did you feel by the end about how like what do you what do you think that she would think of the final book
1: such a good question um i honestly don't know i honestly don't know and i feel that 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 sensation that i encountered so many times in myself as i was researching and writing the book as i even think about it that feeling of not for me that's not for me you know that strong feeling of like um reluctance to um sometimes put words in her mouth you know i don't know and and sometimes i feel very protective of um of eileen dove in that sense of temptation to express what might she have thought about xyz and this is part of it i've never really spent too much time thinking about what might she have thought of this book because I don't know and I'll never know. And and maybe readers could could um make a better judgment of that than I could. I think um all I can speak to really is the sense of her presence and and how important it has been throughout my life, you know, and and that um I attempted to show a certain devotion to to her life for a long time. And I think the, the act and the impulse of devotion were maybe more important as far as I'm concerned than the final result of how she would have felt about the book. Rather than that, it's the fact that someone hundreds of years later would have engaged with her voice as it was expressed through her poem devoted themselves to finding as much as still could be found of her life you know and 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 that's what I feel I can kind of stand over
2: the way that you went about this is exactly the way that it had to be done which is going into as you say going into the dark room and trying to find how to turn on the light so thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me about it I found this absolutely fascinating
1: oh thank you and i mean it means so much to me that readers are finding this book and like you you know that you're taking it into your heart and that you've taken the time to talk to me and and to consider such really fascinating areas for discussion and to write up such amazing questions and i really appreciate you thinking about this book and giving it a good home (laughs) so thank
0: you Many thanks to Deryn Negreifa for taking part in this podcast. Her book, A Ghost in the Throat, is available from Tramp Press. Her newest collection, To Star the Dark, will be published by Daedalus Press in April. More information is available on the episode page for this podcast. And if you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.